What an excellent song to lead us into our time of worship in the Word this morning. We are certainly so thankful for the grace of God that has brought us into a saving relationship to Himself and that we enjoy all the benefits of Christ's work as we exercise our faith and trust in Him. This morning, our text, as we seek to get into God's Word, is 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to our passage, and as you do so, let us turn to the Lord one more time in a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to bless our time together and for the Spirit uh, to give us uh, attention to those things which He has for us in His Word. Let's pray together. Father, what a marvelous truth this is that we sing of, uh, that Your work on the cross has set us free in order that we might be obedient from the heart towards God, that our new desire in Christ is to do that which You have declared is good and perfect and righteous. Father, as we've worked through the epistle of John to the churches, we've seen over and over again that those who have been born again produce the evidence of their faith in their good works, in their doing righteousness, in their love for the brethren, even in their ability to discern truth from error as we depend on Your Word. And so even this morning as we think about the implications that that has for us as we come into uh, a desire to obey the commands of God. Father, would you impress upon our hearts the Spirit of Christ, the reality that is new for us in Him, that now we desire and delight in your Word, even as the psalmist delights in it from Psalm chapter 1. Father, what a marvelous truth this is this morning. Would you Give us attention to these things. May the, may the Spirit impress them upon our hearts. We're so thankful for it. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as I said, we will find ourselves this morning in the book of 1 John chapter 5. And we are drawing our time together in this first epistle from the Apostle John to a close. We have found ourselves upon this fifth chapter, and there are only a few sermons left uh, in this epistle uh, to the churches from the Apostle John. And we have certainly learned a lot from John throughout this epistle. We've learned about the nature and the work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. We've learned about what that means for those who believe. Even as we've seen the manifestations of the Spirit in our own lives as we trust in the work of Christ. And as any author tends to do as they come to the end of a letter or the end of the book, John seeks to somewhat summarize everything that he's said so far in this last chapter. He also seeks to tie up any loose ends that may have been Uh, misinterpreted as the original audience and even as we have read it uh, together through our time in this letter. And so in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, John expressly addresses 
the relationship that the believer has to the commandments of God. Now it would seem in the first century as John is dealing with the culture around him and even the false teachers that this was quite the issue for the first century audience, even as it is among us today. See, it would seem that the evangelical church is a bit confused about how we as believers should view God's law. Is it good? Is it applicable to the Christian? Maybe the law of God has been nullified. Well, John has addressed this from many different angles throughout this epistle, but now he takes that question head on. How should we as believers relate to the commandments of God? Now, at first glance, we've seen or we see from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, that the law at its core has not been nullified, but that it's been fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, Paul says to us in Romans chapter 6, that we should not continue in sin in order that grace may abound. And what we learn from John here in 1 John chapter 5 is that we as believers have an entirely new relationship to the commandments of God. And so let us read together for this morning our text. And what I want us to see in our time together are three ways that we should relate to the law of God. And we're going to do that by seeking to answer this question. Why should we, as Christians, keep God's commandments? Why, uh, why should we, as Christians, keep God's commandments? Notice the three reasons that John gives to us here in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What we notice in our text for this morning is that at the forefront of the apostle's mind here is the relationship that the believer has to the commandments of God. We notice it in verse 2. We notice it again in verse 3 where John says that we are to keep his commandments because his commandments are not burdensome to us. And the reason why they are not burdensome to us is because we have been born again in Christ. And so what I want us to see this morning in our text are three reasons why we as believers can 
and should keep God's commandments. If you're following along in the bulletin, your insert, the first fill-in for you this morning is the first reason why we can and should keep God's commandments is because we have been born again. We have been born again. Notice what John says with me here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. John makes an assertion, and from that assertion, he makes an implication for us. The assertion is that all those who believe in Jesus have been born of God. And therefore, the implication is that we should love those who have been born of God, and therefore, we should love all those who believe. And I want you to notice something specifically about the grammar of verse 1. Notice that John says in verse 1 that all those who believe that Jesus is the Christ have been born of God. The main verb in this sentence is ginomai, or to be born, and it's found in the perfect tense and the passive voice. Now, the grammar of this text is important because it communicates to us that the work that God has done and is doing in us is a work that is sourced in the regeneration or the rebirth of the Spirit in those who believe. Notice, as I've said, that this verb here, to be born, is found in the perfect tense and the passive voice. Well, what does that mean to us? Why is that significant? Well, the perfect tense indicates that an action has taken place in the past and has produced a state that remains in the present. And the passive voice indicates that that action was done to us. That it's not primarily something that we did, or even a result of something that we did. It is something that someone else did to us. Let me see if I can illustrate this for us this morning. Softball season is coming up. Tomorrow, Monday, 6 o'clock, join us if you'd like. Even if you're not playing and you want to cheer us from the sideline, you are welcome to. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that while I was playing softball, Victor over in center field is distracting me, as Victor tends to do. And there's a pop fly that's hit to, to left field, and since I'm paying attention to Victor and I'm not paying attention to the softball that is barreling towards me, I miss the softball and the softball hits me square in the eye. Oh my, Joy says. And that softball hits me so hard that it leaves a bruise and that bruise is so distinct that you can even see the threads from the softball. Now, what would we say about that event? 
we would say that I have a bruise having been hit by the softball. That there was an event that took place and that it impressed upon me an indelible imprint. And that we know that I got hit by a softball. Why? Because the bruise is the proof or the evidence of it. That is what John is saying here. All who believe have been born of God. Something has happened to those who believe that has produced a desired effect. That is to say that we were born of God. And the belief is the evidence of that rebirth. How do we know that I was hit by a softball? There's a bruise that proves it. How do we know those who have been born of God? Believing in Jesus, the Son of God, is the proof that we have been born of God. Now this opens then, this rebirth opens then a completely new potential for those who belong to Jesus. Not only are we able to see Jesus for who he is because of this work of God, but we also have the desire to do the very works of righteousness that Jesus himself did. The reality that John is pointing us to here is that our connection to Christ is so real and so vital that once we are born again, we want the very things that Jesus wants. And that we act the, in the very same ways that Jesus acted. If Jesus loved the brethren, so now then we too desire to love the brethren because Jesus' spirit lives within us. And we access this reality through faith. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the righteous shall live by faith. That the Christian life is begun by faith and is maintained by faith and is continued and brought to its culmination in the exercising of our faith. And therefore, faith or trust in Christ becomes the fundamental work of every believer. Because we have been born again, because Christ has done a radical and fundamental work within our own souls and our own hearts, because we have been born again, we have a new relationship to the law of God. We have a new relationship to the commandments of God. We no longer obey them out of a burden, as we will see in a little bit. But we obey them in faith in the Son of God, who died for us, was raised again, and was ascended to the heavens to sit at the right hand of God the Father. What we learn in our text this morning is that, the new, that in the new creation, we have a new relationship to God's commandments. We can and we should keep God's commandments 
because that is who we are. We are new creations in Christ. And therefore, we desire God's commands. We delight in God's commands because they are good. The second reason why we can and should keep God's commandments this morning, if you're following along in your bulletin insert, not only have we been born again, but secondly, God's commandments are benevolent. God's commandments are benevolent. Notice it with me this morning in 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. I got to learn how to drink water up here. <coughs> First John chapter 5 verse 2 and 3, God's commandments are benevolent. Says this, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, what do I mean this morning when I say that God's commandments are benevolent? I mean that God's law brings about good to those who keep it. It is in the very DNA of God's commandments that as we keep those things that God reveals to us are good in the scriptures, we then experience the very goodness and blessing of God. Notice what John says to us in verse 3. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Even as we saw two weeks ago, John is all about defining for us what constitutes the love of God. I imagine that John is afraid and maybe he should be, that someone is going to misinterpret the love of God. Does that sound familiar to us this morning? That someone might just say that the love of God allows us to do whatever we want because God is gracious and loving. But what we learn in our text, beloved, is that the love of God is seen in both the content and the keeping of God's commands. Notice John says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Is is a being verb. It's showing us something concerning the very nature of God's love. And what we learn here is that God's love is equated with the keeping of God's commandments. And so, how might, this morning, we characterize God's love? God's love is found in the articulation of His good and perfect will for humanity and in our keeping that law to our own good and benefit. What do I mean by this? I mean that the commandments of God are an expression of his love for us. You see, if love is a commitment to the well-being of another that compels us to act on their behalf 
for their ultimate benefit, then we know that God presents his love to us in the issuing of commands. It is in the very command of God where we see the expression of God's love. Again, let me see if I can illustrate this reality for you. I'm a father, and oftentimes I give my children commands. And I trust that when I command my children to do something, I pray that it's from a place of love and a desire to see them flourish. Last summer, we visited Niagara Falls as a family. And I'm not sure if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, but as impressive as the falls are, the Niagara River is a force in and of itself. You see, as you stand on the banks of the Niagara River, you notice that that river rushes to the falls in thunderous rapids. Now, as we get out of the van and my kids begin to play in the yard next to the river, I, as a dutiful father, give my boys, especially my boys, a very clear command. Do not get too close to the riverbank. And of course, as every little boy is wont to do, one of my boys asked me, Why, Dad? Why can't we play next to the river? To which I respond, Because the river is dangerous. You see, my chief concern was that my boys survive our little trip to Niagara Falls and that they go on to live a full and happy life. And so my command was to protect them from falling into the river and being swept downstream and over the falls. The point is that my command is an expression of, of my love for my boys and my desire to see them make it out of boyhood. I know the danger of playing too close to the bank of the river, and my command articulates and expresses my loving desire to keep them not only from perishing, but also to enjoy the beauty of the falls albeit from a safe distance. And so my command is sourced in my love for my children. And that is the same thing that the Spirit expresses to us here. Just like I wanted to keep my children from perishing in the falls, so God desires to keep His children from walking into destruction. You see, when God commands us to do something, it's not because his desire is to be some cosmic killjoy. It's because he knows what promotes flourishing in his creatures, and he has set 
the boundaries and the parameters of that flourishing. And he has articulated those boundaries to us in his holy and infallible word. And therefore, to remain in the commands of God is to remain in his love, because at the very heart of his commands is his loving impulse to give us life. Psalm 119 does an excellent job in conveying this reality. Turn with me this morning, if you would, to Psalm chapter 119, and we will read verses 1 through 16. And what I want you to notice in this psalm is how well the psalmist articulates God's intent for his commands. And what we notice as we read through down, down through Psalm 119 is that the intent of God's commands is that we would enjoy God's presence and blessing. Notice Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16. It says this, blessed or joyous. Blessed or joyous are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Notice the connection between walking in God's law and enjoying blessedness. Verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The love of God is found in the keeping of God's commandments because it is in those commands where God defines for us the realm of a blessed life, a life that walks in the presence of of God Almighty, a life that benefits from the ways and rules and testimonies and laws and commandments of our good and gracious God. And so, why should we keep God's commands? First and foremost, because we have been born again, and therefore it's within our new nature to do so. But secondly, because God is so good to define for us the parameters of that life which will bring us ultimate blessedness and happiness. And we find that life in God's word. 
But there's a third reason we should keep God's commands. There's a third reason why we can and we should keep the commandments of God. And it's because in Christ, God's commands are no longer a burden, but a great delight. If you're following along in the insert in your bulletin, that's your third and final fill-in. God's commands are benevolent, and God's commands are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. Notice it with me in verses 3 and 4 this morning. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. The word for burdensome there means an unbearable weight. The picture is one of carrying something on our shoulders that requires a great amount of exertion, even to the point of exhaustion. Jesus uses this word to describe the burden of the law of the Pharisees. Notice it in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, which is found on the insert in your bulletin. Jesus says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This word burden is used of Moses during the battle of Israel against Amalek. As Moses raised his staff above his head, the the Israelites prevailed against the Amalekites. But that staff became too heavy, for the battle was long. And Moses needed the assistance of Aaron and Hur to hold up his hand. Exodus 17, verse 12. You see, the point of this word, burden, is not to denote merely something that is hard, but something that is unbearable. On our own, in our flesh, in the old man, we cannot bear the weight of the burden of God's command. We are too weak, and the weight of God's glory is far too great. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason the work of Christ is so glorious is because He has taken those who were enslaved to sin and therefore unable to abide by God's law And he has set them free through his death and his resurrection. You see, in Christ, we have died to the law in order that we might be free to keep God's law. Not by the external constraint of God's punishment, as we saw last week, but by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Paul says with me in Galatians chapter 2. Again, which can be found on the insert in your bulletin. Galatians chapter 2 verse 19 says this, For through the law I died to the law 
so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I did not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no What does Paul mean by this statement in Galatians chapter 3? What does it mean to die to the law in order that we might live to God? What does John mean when he says that the commandments are no longer a burden to us? Let me see if I can explain this in the time that we have remaining this morning. Because I think it's so important for us to understand what is happening here in order for us to understand how we might keep God's law. You see, at the heart of these statements is that in our union with Christ, in his death, resurrection, and ascension, we have been remade to obey God's commandments from the inside out. What the Bible is getting at here is that once, when we were dead in sin, the law was something that was placed upon our shoulders as a weight to carry. But in the new birth, the law is placed within our hearts as something to be expressed. In the old man, the law was external, written on stone tablets. But in the new man, the law is internal, written upon our fleshly hearts. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. You see, in the flesh, we have no desire towards God. In the flesh, we only do evil continually. In the flesh, we do what is right in our own eyes, and therefore, God must enforce the law as a way to curb evil in the world. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Therefore, the law is imposed upon the sinner from the outside in order to conform his inner desires to do what is good and righteous because of fear of punishment and therefore preserve some sense of goodness on this earth. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, that we are to be subject to the governing authorities because they are appointed to maintain some sense of good on the earth, that they are not a terror to those who do good, but that they are a terror to those who do bad, for they do not bear the sword in vain. And therefore, to preserve some sense of good in this world, God imposes the law from the outside in. But this is a burden to the unbeliever. 
Because the unbeliever does not want to, nor can he, submit to God's law, but instead his desire is to express the hidden evils of his heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, and Romans chapter 8, verse 7. So then, why is this no longer the case for the believer? Why is the law no longer a burden to us? Remember what John said in chapter 2, verse 29 and following. Look at it with me. 1 John chapter 2, I trust you're still there. Verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Beloved, what we learn from the Apostle John is that in Christ our inner man has been remade. So that we are no longer conformed by the law as an external constraint, but instead we are transformed by the Spirit as an internal compulsion. The reason the commandments of God are no longer a burden to us is because we have Christ dwelling within us, who is the embodiment of all of God's commands. We've already seen this. We love because he first loved us. We do righteousness because he is righteous and we abide in him and he is us. And this is why our victory is realized by faith. Notice John goes on to say in verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes this world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes and continues to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? The one who believes in Christ overcomes the world through faith. That is to say that once we were enslaved to this world and its passions and desires, but now we have victory over those passions and desires in Christ. Because he's remaking us from the inside out. We are no longer constrained by the law as if it is imposed upon us from the outside and therefore a burden on our shoulders. We are compelled by an inner motivation and delight in God's law because Jesus lives within us. See, beloved, in Christ we are new creations. And the good news of the gospel is that the righteousness of God is established and maintained in Christ and through us as we exercise faith in Him. As we believe and trust in what Christ has done 
before us than Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 is true of us. Where Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Should we, can we, obey the commandments of God? We should and we can. Why? Because we have been born again. Because the commandments are good and benevolent. And because it's what we have been recreated to do in Christ. For those who believe the law is no longer a burden, but it is a delight as we embrace the reality of Christ. And therefore, beloved, let me leave you with Paul's words from Romans chapter 6. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Might we believe that this morning? Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your grace towards us. We're so thankful for the work of Christ as he began a good work in us, and he will certainly finish it. Father, may we be those who are marked by faith. May we be those who trust in Christ, not only for our initial justification, but even for our ongoing sanctification. May we find ourselves in him. May we seek to live in Christ, to exercise Christ, to be who we are in him. Father, what a glorious good news this is. Would you impress it upon our hearts even as we leave this place? We're so thankful for it, and we pray this in your name.